Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast. On this episode, we arrive at the end of the Inferno, where Satan is frozen in a lake of ice. Dante's Satan is a mechanistic creature, seemingly without agency, personality, or voice. His main function is to sit at the center of hell, the lowest point in Dante's hierarchical universe, where the flapping of his six wings cools the lake of ice around him, and to allow Dante and Virgil to use his body as a ladder to climb up and out of hell. He is, to say the least, not charming, duplicitous, playful, or mocking. The most lifelike thing about him are the tears he continually cries. What is the meaning of these tears? Is Satan expressing sorrow, or regret, or rage, or pain, or some other emotion? Or is he just cold? In a poem full of memorable characters and self-aggrandizing monologues, why is evil's most famous representative a blank, more of an object than a living being? What does this tell us about Dante's sense of evil and goodness, and about the many questions of poetry, rhetoric, representation, and power we have discussed throughout the Inferno? Can we conceive of a Satan who spoke his peace and did not omit at least a touch of rebellious glamour? So we, in 34, we come to Satan. Who's at the center of hell, the lowest place in the universe. And he is frozen in a lake of ice. He has three heads and six bat wings, bat-like, giant bat-like wings. And in each one of his heads, he is gnawing on a traitor of some kind. So he's gnawing on Brutus and Cassius and Judas. And he is... Well, I guess I'll ask it this way. So we, we have a trip through hell. It's filled with colorful and charismatic characters. We have these often quite long chances to tell their stories. The previous canto had a, it's almost completely taken up with the, the monologue of Count Ugolino, who is um, imprisoned in a tower in Italy and starves to death of his children and his attempts to garner Dante's pity. But Satan is discussed and dismissed fairly quickly. He only occupies about 30% of the final canto and he's not, he doesn't speak. He seems like he can't speak. He seems to be almost completely lifeless and he's just rendered as a sort of mechanical beast who cools the lake of ice around him by the flapping of his bat wings. So I guess my question is, after the traipse through hell full of all the colorful and charismatic sinners, why does Dante render Satan without character without charisma uh, is almost like a, a lifeless machine more than uh, more than anything else if you it's i think it's interesting to compare you know the obvious point of comparison is milton satan and famously milton satan is charismatic almost to the degree that it's a problem for the theological aims of paradise lost famously the romantics the generation after Milton came along and said Satan is actually the hero of this poem, not the not the villain. Yeah, I wonder how dangerous it would be to give Satan like any words. Obviously, in the description of this canto, Satan has three mouths and they're all gnawing on a traitor. Satan, he's the fallen angel, 
heavenly traitor against God. And then Judas bears the most pain being tortured by Satan. Judas betrayed Jesus. I mean, it's just kind of a joke to say like, well, Satan doesn't say anything because his mouth is full. <laughs> it's impolite to talk with your mouth full. I wonder, this is not a direct answer to either of your observations. There's a sort of problem here. So if we read in the gospels, you know, we know that Satan tempts Christ, right? The three temptations, right? If we read the book of Job, we know Satan comes into the court of God. So at some points in human history, Satan is roaming about the earth, right? And I think kind of very important to the Christian understanding of spirituality is like, I mean, even there's that line in first John, right? The, the devil roars or, or prowls around like a lion looking for whom he may devour. So it's an interesting question of like, how can Satan be wreaking havoc on earth and also here in hell at the same time? And I think like the most, yeah, of his characterization, really the thing that comes out the most clearly is that he's stuck and he's stuck in a trap of his own devising, right? Because there's all these tears flowing from all the sinners and from him and he's beating his wings and the more he beats his wings, the more the water freezes and the more stuck he is, right? That's kind of the mechanism such as it is. And in a sense that poses some sort of question about the, the question we've always come back to is like the allegorical or symbolism of Dante's work. Is Dante really trying to say that at this moment, the, you know, and we could bring in the book of Revelation and say, well, in the book of Revelation, there's a real moment where God says, Satan, enough of your shenanigans, I'm throwing you into the fiery pit and sealing it off but that's in the future. And so this is a, from the point of view of Dante, who I think would have believed that Satan was a literal being, right? And a contingent being, right? The difference between Satan and God is that God is omnipresent, Satan isn't. So for somebody like Dante, who believed the devil existed, he would have to think about the question of like, how can the devil be in hell and on the earth at the same time during this intermediary stage before the final judgment which i don't know what we can even i don't even know if we are qualified to say anything about that because it would require i think a deep knowledge of medieval theology but it's just a, a question for what it's worth so you're saying like theologically satan is a, a force present within the world yeah, narratively, but, narratively, but, he's a force no. present in the world until the end of the story, which we're not at yet. In the, in the Holy Bible. Yeah. Where, yeah. Okay. And then in Dante's poem, Satan is here frozen and doesn't seem like, I mean, we just don't know what kind of agency or influence he could possibly have if he's frozen and gnawing on three sinners with his three heads and presumably you know doesn't really have an opportunity to speak or move so yeah the question is how could he possibly have like this influential force that engenders sin in our world right yeah you really don't get the sense from anything in the inferno that 
Satan or any of or the demons are out in the world being like malevolent presences on earth, right? I mean, I mean, there, I guess in some sense, the earth is connected to hell, but in, in like a literal sense, there's no discussion or anything of a demon leaving hell or anything like that, right? They're all sort of contained to their jobs in hell. And the sin is sin is something that humans human beings do or don't do right mm-hmm. it's not like i you don't ever in any of the cantos we've read there's never seems to me there's a sense that like for one thing none of the sinners try to blame their sin on being tempted or anything like that Dem- right? demonic influence yeah they don't ever say anything like that so I, I i wonder if he in an odd way it's like he had a more robust sense of human freedom or something right it's like sin is is not there's good and there's evil but human beings are in a, in a really absolute way like free to make the choice between them you know and evil is expressed and it's more pure and little form in hell but it's not walking around in the same way on earth except as you know i think except through human beings no. mm-hmm. i don't know that for sure that's right but it, that's well, like Francesca blames the book that she was reading, right? The Guinevere, mm-hmm. Guinevere tale. And I think it's pretty clear that we're supposed to read that excuse as not legitimate. Like, no, no, no. It was the lust inside you that you gave into. It's not the book's fault. Yeah, yeah. No, I think no, no. Certainly no excuse given by a sinner is supposed to be legitimate, but they also, you know, your point that none of them even blame demons is interesting. Demonic influence, mm-hmm. which is a huge part of medieval spirituality, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you re- if you read the early church fathers, if you read any sort of mysticism, right? They're always saying, "Be on the watch out for demons. Demons around every corner trying to <laughs> yeah. lure you." Right? That's yeah. a kind of so. It's sort of interesting. I didn't even realize until this moment that. Yeah, Dante does not attribute to all the sin and decadence on earth. He he never attributes it to demonic, mm-hmm. let's say, control, right? Which would, would mitigate human freedom. Yeah. Um, in the mouth of Virgil, Dante the poet, Dante the pilgrim, or the sinners. There's no mm-hmm. sense that I I was forced to do what I did, that what what got me here was a result of like what we might say is possession, right? And possession, whatever it is, possession is a a, a stripping of agency. It certainly is strange because, you know, you have in the Gospels, Jesus casting demons out of certain people. Yeah, many many times, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's also true that in the precursors, the poetic precursors that he's drawing on primarily, thinking of Ovid especially there is it is possible to be possessed right and to be right. sort of forced forced or tricked into doing something by by gods or mm-hmm. fantastical beings Hermes for instance mm-hmm. it's interesting we're talking about agency right like uh in higher levels of hell right you have demons that Dante runs away from Right. And in this moment, right, Virgil, they literally go up to Satan and literally grab onto him and sort of use him as a ladder, right, to get sort of past the 
center of the earth. And so there's no sense, right? And that's maybe the mechanical thing that you're getting at, Adam. There's no sense that like, well, if we grab onto Satan, he might lash out and bite mm -hmm. us or swat us away with his giant hand, right? There's all this emphasis yeah. on how big he is. I he's mean, not he's, scary though. Yeah, yeah he's, he, he, he lacks agency so much that he can, I mean, he's, he can be objectified like literally as a ladder. I think if I'm not mistaken, this is the only time in the whole inferno that Dante has put his hand physically on a demonic figure, right? He's kicked some sinners in the head, uh, grabbed him by the hair, human sinners, but I think this is the first time. No, 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 that's not true. So he wrote on that other guy, Gary on, he wrote on him down, mm -hmm. but it's one of the rare times. There's yeah. maybe two or three. Um, yeah, but Gary on more, more of a figure out of myth really than a, I mean, a demonic figure. Mm -hmm. I guess he's a, Although in 31, the giant that they encounter does pick Dante up and lift him onto the floor of hell. Yeah, that's right. No, okay, so I was wrong about thinking that. But this is nonetheless, I would maintain nonetheless that this is the most fearless physical mm -hmm. contact. He doesn't say anything about being afraid of Satan. That's true. Uh -huh. He's astounded. Well, He's maybe shocked. He does, actually. What, uh, what does he say when he sees? So he says... Then how faint and frozen I became, reader, do not ask, for I do not write it, since any words would fail to be enough. I did not die, nor did I stay alive. Imagine if you have the wit, what I, deprived of either state, the emperor of the woeful kingdom, it's a great line, rose from the ice below his breast, and I, in size, am closer to a giant than giants are when measured to his arms. Judge then what the whole must be that is proportional to such a part. If he was fair as he is hideous now and raised his brow in scorn of his creator, he is fit to be the source of every sorrow. So it's not exactly, he doesn't quite say he's afraid. It's almost like life itself is the spark of life or something is absent, you know? It's like he's not dead, but he can't be alive because there's just no life at all. All life is drained from this, this place. Yeah, I mean, this is like a probably, I don't know if this is a helpful comparison, but it's almost like if, if when you were kids, you went to like Disneyland and you'd go th through those rides and you saw the, you know, animatronic characters, right? And they're sort of just doing the same thing over and over again. And like, there's a moment when you see them that they appear lifelike and then you see that they're just repeating the same motion. And it's obvious that it's deterministic, mechanical. And like, <laughs> you could, you, you know, yeah. you could go up there and as long as you stay, as long as you don't put yourself in the chomping jaws, nothing's going to happen because he's just sort of doing this futile thing, chomping these sinners forever, mm -hmm. um, which is sorrow to them, but, but he never swallows them, right? There's no sustenance. Right, because it's, it's an endless suffering. You know, we're talking about eternity, at least until the um, second coming, yeah. But Satan's own, right? I mean, I think it's probably fair to say metaphorically, right? The satanic desire is to consume mankind, right? And and he doesn't even do that, right? He it's the telos of of chewing, right? Yeah, which is yeah. swallowing and nourishment is not fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of yeah. futility in the very it's a punishment both ways, right? Judas is chomped forever, Satan choose forever and receives no sustenance mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is not totally un, un, 
unlike the Ruggieri and Ugolino story where Ugolino is gnawing forever on this Archbishop Ruggieri's head, but there's no sense that that gnawing satiates. Yeah, no, it specifically doesn't. I mean, never. I'm trying to connect. So, and I really am interested in the passage in 31. I'm just going to read it because I think it's really one of my favorite things in the Inferno. And I think it, it sets you up for Satan. In 31, he encounters all the giants who warred with the gods in various forms. And the first one he encounters is um, Nimrod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And See, I'm going to start at 58 for Inferno 31, 58. His face appeared to me as long and broad as in Rome, the pine cone at St. Peter's, his other parts as large in like degree, so that the bank which hid him like an apron from his middle downwards still showed so much of him above that quite in vain three Frieslanders might boast of having reached his hair. For I saw 30 spans of him beneath the place where men make fast their cloaks. Raphael, my amici's ah almi, the savage mouth for which no sweeter psalms were fit, began to shout. And in response, my leader, you muddled soul, stick to your horn, vent yourself with that when rage or other passion takes you. Search at your neck, you creature of confusion, and you will find the rope that holds the horn aslant your mammoth chest. Then he to me, he is his own accuser. This is Nimrod because of whose vile plan the world no longer speaks a single tongue. Let us leave him and not waste our speech, for every language is to him as his is to others, and his is understood by none. So I think it's a really interesting passage. Nimrod, who is instrumental in attempting to build a tower of Babel, and his punishment is inversion of the punishment. So it's like he wants, the earth spoke a single tongue and the, in punishment for building Babel, the tongues of the earth are scattered. So into groups of people who can't communicate. And the Nimrod is punished by be having a completely unique language that he's trying to speak, but no one can understand what he's saying. So he has this complete perfect inversion of the, the uh, pre-Babelian state of of language and it's also this this really fascinating image of being a sinner in hell where you're you're stuck in like pure solipsism you know and there's no community there's no possibility of communication or change you're just kind of you're trapped within the image of yourself forever you know that's kind of your in a sense that is that is your punishment you know you're you're trapped with your with your favorite sin <laughs> and that's all you can really see or think about you know yeah i think it's really it's something i that moment in particular has always stuck with me and it's something i think about a lot i can't quite say why it seems so profound to me but i think it's a really powerful powerful image when there's a moment for every language is to him as his to others so not only is he he's speaking and he can't understand anyone or nobody can understand him, but when Virgil speaks to him, he hears Babel too, right? Mm -hmm. Virgil's yelling this curse at him. Um, But to him, he just hears, you know, like the Charlie Brown teacher or something, right? Um, Yeah, it is. He still wants to communicate. That's what Uh he's understanding about. He still hopes to communicate or something, but even though, you know, that's somehow that's 
then all these all these demons and sinners are like walking by and he's just yelling at them and, and like you know sinner after sinner is just looking at him like what are you talking about you yeah. Know? Yeah. uh yeah it's a very yeah it's like a perfect perfectly tragic ending for his brand of hubris yeah. right and i think he's supposed to be a he's supposed to be like a foreshadowing of satan right that's hmm. what to think of him when we think of satan as well right and they both have i mean the to build the tower of babel is to desire to be like god mm-hmm. right and with the christian understanding of of satan's faults he wanted to be like god and that's why he fell mm-hmm. and so with both figures satan and nimrod they are thoroughly incapacitated they cannot pursue their sinful ends anymore in their punishment it's interesting because then in the next canto or 32 to 33 we have this ugolino who's also in a tower right and in some ways right when he gets and well just to say this up uh, off the top at the top right we we won't necessarily have time to do this in the episode but definitely Ugolino's account is self-serving in that he definitely highlights the sin done to him and sort of obscures his own sin, right? Because he obviously must have sinned very gravely to be as far down as he does. And if you just take his account on face value, you go, what did you do to deserve to be here? Mm-hmm. Um, so we could work out what that is. I, that's not necessarily my point at the moment. But when Ruggieri nails Ugolino into the tower, right, he is playing god in a real way like he's circumscribing ugolino in this little world right it's probably round right he's 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 circumscribing him in this world as if he were god but that world lacks all of the good things like food right Mm. um that god's world has right and so Mm. ruggieri's betrayal right is i'm in part i'm gonna play god in in that i'm betraying another human and basically controlling every part of their destiny and he does it in a really sort of heinous way right it has none of the the grace that god's world has Mm -hmm. in terms of being filled with good things right um but i'm sort of interested i mean and then and then satan himself right we have three towers we have nimrod of the tower of babel we have the tower in which ugolino is locked and then satan himself functions like a tower or a ladder right and the tower is i think a really great biblical symbol of pride um, and the attempt to be like god god is always associated with mountains right if you want to meet god you go to the highest place and receive the ten commandments or if you're elijah you go up to mount carmel and like you encounter god if you're the prophet elijah but a, a mountain is something created by God, right? A tower is something created by human cleverness, right? And, and if created wrongly, a, a tower is a sort of, it's a sort of profane and unauthorized way to try to reach godliness. And it's interesting because it's like a liter- it's like a metaphor, but it's like literal, right? Like Tower of Babel, you know, way back then, it's like if we can get higher, we're closer to God. If we can get high up in the air, we'll be godlike. <laughs> that that was the thinking, right? But as a symbol, it, it functions that people who, in these unauthorized ways or these profaning ways, try to make their stature godlike, and mm-hmm. that's what we see in in a lot of these sinners. 
And that's what the Giants did too when they rebelled against Zeus, right? And so we're kind of yeah. seeing a, a common thread in these most these low lowest layers. And to want to, I'll stop in a second, but to want to be godlike, right, is to want no restrictions, right? No restrictions on movement or desire. And these sinners are, of all the sinners, are the most restricted, literally, right? They're frozen in ice. They cannot move. I don't know. What do you do with that? Anything good there? I'm trying to, uh, I thought I remembered that the theme, you know, this is a recurring theme. I think this through line is a, is a very good observation, Elijah. And I think it goes even further back because wasn't Ulysses trying to reach the mountain or, you know, and, and make his way toward the gods as well. That's when yeah, that's it was good. struck down. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was thinking more, I mean, that, that is interesting. I'm not sure. I was thinking about it more in terms of of language and rhetoric and the ability of language to be destructive or to deceive, you know. And you have this very stark back and forth, I think, with the, you, the giants who are somehow either can't speak or they no longer have the power of reason or they're just like, trapped in a an isolated language like Nimrod and then you have Satan who can't speak and he's surrounded by sinners who are completely covered in ice so obviously they can't speak either and then in the canto between those images there's this the long monologue of Ugliono who tries to yeah sort of justify and exculpate himself in some way and feels like Tower of Babel sets you up for the idea of the Tower of Babel sets you up for that somehow that that the most powerful thing people have is language and that there's like a, a moral responsibility to use it you know to good ends or something and I don't know I'm not, I'm not trying to make all that all that line up but somehow there it's like the reason probably maybe that Satan can't speak is that if he's we see this progression of charismatic sinners and they are baiting us with more and more impressive rhetoric right you can think of francesca you can think of ulysses think of uglino uglino perhaps satan you know would be the most powerful rhetorician of all or something so it's like his punishment is to be cut off from the real source of his power somehow. Uh, does, do you see what I mean? I, I don't know that quite lines up with what you're saying, Elijah, but there's a lot in these last four cantos about speaking or not being able to speak about eating, about tongues mm -hmm. and mouths. You know, I think that's really the, the program throughout. I mean, right. I think, I don't know if you reference this, but obviously like, the Genesis narrative, right? The Satan, the, the serpent, right? Which we typically interpret as Satan um, is a wily trickster and, right, uses rhetoric to get Eve to commit the sin. So sin enters the world through a deceptive use of language, right? Through a lie. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the serpent's first word or words are, did God really say you must not eat of all of the trees that are in the fruit of, gar- of, of the Garden of Eden, all of the right. trees that are in the Garden of Eden, and that's not never what God said, right? So there's this sort of slippery use lie, of like language. an insinuation or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that sort of connects to the idea of freedom in the sense of, connects to the idea of freedom in that Eve or Adam was not forced to sin, but they were sort of deceived into using their freedom wrongly. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine, like, what would Satan have said if he could sit there speaking, right? If Dante could have had a, Dante the Pilgrim could have had a conversation with him, what would, what could Satan have said? I sort of brought up the question a couple weeks ago about, like, is self-awareness about your sin something of a virtue? Because I was detecting a pattern where it seemed like the deeper in sin, the deeper in hell you got, the, the greater awareness the sinners had of their sinfulness, right? The less they tried to hide it in some way which Ugolino, I think, sort of troubles that potential pattern. Um, But it's interesting with Satan, right? There's a real clear sense that there's nothing to say. He just weeps endlessly, which almost looks like penitence, (laughs) right? Right? Um, Mm. And I mean, if you think about Milton's characterization of Satan, right? What I think Milton shows really amazingly is like, the quality of of self or the the yeah the quality of self-deception and how a person can become so self-deceived right satan makes the declaration which mary shelley bars for frankenstein right henceforth evil shall be my good right and so there's a real sense there's like a few moments in paradise lost where satan has these moments of epiphany and he's like what did i do how could i have done that but the overall arc of his character is this sort of increasingly giving in to self-deception so that he so distorts his vision that evil really appears to be good to him. Right. And I even think in sort of the modern Christian imagination, there's this idea of like Satan is such a hardened soul that he has no remorse at all. Right. Just completely ruthless. I don't know what the medieval imagination of Satan would have been like, but it's really interesting to think, that at the center of hell is somebody that acts like a penitent would act, but it's a sort of, right, the tears I'm thinking specifically. And even, you know, we could even talk about the three sinners as some sort of, I mean, Satan has three heads and that's some sort of inverted trinity, right? And I'm almost wondering if like, for Dante the Catholic, this would have been especially important, thinking about all of the stuff with eating and mouths and all of that, if the three centers are some sort of parody of the Eucharist, right? You eat, because the whole idea of the Eucharist is you eat the body of Christ, and that brings regeneration, right? That brings reconciliation with God, you know? But Judas, right, is Judas becomes something like Satan's Eucharistic wafer, but instead of bringing reconciliation, it brings torment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no, maybe one of you can pick up and yeah. think on that. But mm-hmm. I, I have to feel like self-deception is a requirement. Right? Requirement, but self-deception is the condition of the sinners that we encounter throughout hell. I don't think. Do we encounter any penitent sinners? Is penitent is penitence even possible in this in this state? I mean, you could penitence is not possible, I guess, because that, that suggests the possibility of improving your conditions. That's that's purgatory. But like, 
we didn't encounter anyone who said something like, oh, you know, why, why did I do what I did? I, you know, I, now I, I'm, I'm now forced to, to spend eternity both suffering and ruining the mistakes I've made, you know, and opposing the divine order of the world. I don't think we have met anyone who said anything like that. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I was bringing up with Master Adam, right? I'm just going to read Master Adam. So Master, this is Inferno 30, line 60, right? And this is what he says. Uh, oh, 57. Oh, you who go unpunished here, I know not why, through this world of misery, he said, behold, and then consider the suffering of Master Adam. Alive, I had in plenty all I wanted, and now I crave a single drop of water. The streams that in the Casentino run down along green hillsides to the Arno, keeping their channels cool and moist, flow before my eyes forever and not in vain because their image makes me thirst still more than does the malady that wastes my features. The rigid justice that torments me employs the landscape where I sinned to make those sighs come faster. In those parts lies Romano where I forged the coinage stamp for John the Baptist. For that, I left my body burned above, so on and so forth. And I, my question back then was That's like, right. yeah. Oh, he acknowledges that it's rigid justice that's tormenting him. He acknowledges that he sinned. He acknowledged his sin. And he, he seems to make the connection of like, I did this on earth and now I'm being tormented this way. And he doesn't say it's unfair, right? He calls it rigid. So that was the whole, that passage was the whole impetus for my question about the sort of, that seems like a much greater self-awareness than Francesca has, right? Right. Hmm. And I think, I mean, I think all throughout we've seen sinners sort of weeping and stuff, but I think just sort of struck with this characterization of Satan as weeping, which like, what can weeping symbolize except for regret? Like, is it possible for Satan to be there weeping for eternity without wishing he had done otherwise? which does not mean that he can reach salvation, right? That he can repent in such a way that would lead to reconciliation with God. Oh, that's an interesting passage. But I, I, I do agree that the, the master Adam moment, you know, just the way the, at least the way the translation reads, it's, it's so evocative for trying to trying to parse out like does he feel his sin more acutely than other figures we've seen you know does he have this self-awareness that his torment is ordained by the the justice divine justice you know, when we were starting the conversation, trying to parse out um, the description of Satan, and I was talking about, you know, and we've mentioned a few times, Satan, he's perpetually chewing on these great betrayers, and so Satan is not in a position to speak, and I'm thinking about Dante and thinking about his project, you know, Dante the poet is composing a poem and he's giving voice to certain sinners in hell, mythical figures or Florentine 
historical people, but he just can't give any voice to Satan. And I'm trying to think of like, what, what is the danger, right? Because the references that you've made to Milton Satan, it seems to suggest that by giving Satan poetic lines and representing him with things that Satan says, now we have this poetry that is giving us an opportunity to interpret the character of Satan, and it may not align with what God would want. You know, it, it may not be theologically. You're talking about Milton good. there? Right. If Milton's Satan has any problematic moments, you know, then for Dante, you know, maybe it's best for Dante to avoid giving Satan any speech. I guess as we've been tracking with Nimrod to Satan, that speech is powerful. If you are a great sinner, you know, you can... You can sin more greatly through through the power of speech by mm. you know compelling others to help in the aid in the sinful project. And you can deceive yourself more effectively too, right? Such as others. But you can convince yourself that evil is good if you're you know if you're clever enough. It's interesting in terms of to think about it, I'm in terms of the the poem itself, right, as a creative act since Dante is always, he does it again in the, when he, when he describes Satan, you know, I swear, like <laughs> this, this really, this happened. really happened. I, I really yeah. saw this, you know, there's no language adequate to what I saw, but I did see it and I'm going to get as close as I can, you know, and yeah, the, he's obviously very worried about the, the power of rhetoric to deceive and distort and, and the power of powerful rhetoric, you know, like the greater the rhetoric, the greater the possibility of misuse. Right. Such that you can almost be made to see the opposite of the truth. Or you can be made, you can be tricked into believing the opposite of what you see or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. That's a lot to unpack, but. I mean, this all goes back actually to that super interesting line that opened the Ulysses chapter, right? I'm just going to read it again. This is 26. 19 to 24. I grieve then and now I grieve again as my thoughts turn to what I saw. And more than is my way, I curb my powers lest they run on where virtue fails to guide them, his poetic powers, right? So that if friendly star or something better still has granted me its boon, I don't misuse the gift. So, I mean, and it's an awareness, it goes all the way back to, you know, Plato's and Socrates' critiques of the sophists, right? It's not essentially different. I want to draw our attention to a different kind of language. There's one part here. I don't quite know what it means, but so if we picture Satan crying there for eternity, right? Tears rolling down his face. Like how are we supposed to read those tear tears except for as regret? And I wish I had done differently, right? Is it possible for somebody to be crying for eternity and not have something like what we would call a repentant heart? Um, and I want to look just at Inferno 32, starting in line 31. This is his description of the sinners around Satan. And as frogs squat and croak, their snouts out of the water, 
in the season when peasant women often dream of gleaning so shades, ashen with cold, were grieving. Trapped in ice up to the place, the hue of shame appears. Their teeth clatter like the bills of storks. Um, so if I'm reading that line 35 correctly, there's ice up to a certain part of their body and then you see their body and their body has the hue of shame, which I guess would be red. Downturned were all their faces. Their mouths gave witness to the cold while from their eyes came testimony of their woeful hearts. While from their eyes came testimony of their woeful hearts. Looking at the Italian on the opposite page, uh, woeful hearts is cor tristo, right? Which we get the Spanish word triste, sad, right? So something like give testimony of their sad hearts, their mourning hearts, their, right? In that moment, right? Dante interprets the tears as a kind of speech, right? The tears give testimony of their sad hearts. And we would say the same about Satan, right? The tears give testimony about his sad heart, probably. And I'm just thinking like, do we need to deprive Satan of speech because rhetoric is too powerful? Okay, I think that's an interesting question. Bracketing that for a second, Dante could have portrayed Satan as being incredibly angry, right? He could have been in a cage just raging against the walls of it back and forth trying to get out, right? Filled with endless rage. And that would have been a valid symbolical representation of his ultimate sort of lack of agency, right? His impotency in some way. So it could have been rage. It could have been, he could have, uh, you know, say it would have been more like a volcano, right? That just erupts endlessly. And, and then its ashes come down on itself and, you know, corrode, corrode his own body through his sort of endless anger. He could have portrayed Satan as somebody who sat there like Francesca and said, isn't it wonderful that I'm king down here? And he could have, that would have captured, you know, how wonderful I finally have a place of my own. That would have really captured the patheticness of Satan, which I think this character oh, yeah, is yeah. pathetic yeah. in another way, right? Yeah. So like- He could have we... uh, discussed the glory of his revolt against God's unjust dominion. Right? Yeah, so like, yeah. So there's all these different ways he could have framed Satan, but he chose to emphasize the trait of Satan as sad, right? Weeping over everything he's lost. I think that's the way we have to interpret him you guys can push back on that. That's, that seems, seems clear to me, but I'm willing to sort of entertain other options. And so I guess all I'll end with is an observation of like, it would have been valid to portray Satan as angry and sort of persistent in his rebellion. I think that would have been within the theological bounds of Dante. I think that would have been permissible to, to emphasize his self-deception in the mode of Francesca I think also would have been permissible within Dante's theological parameters. But of all the choices, Dante has chosen to emphasize, to portray a Satan that has a certain sort of, it seems, self-knowledge because he continually weeps. But that self-knowledge intersects in some way with the mechanical nature of Satan, right? So there's something automatic about his crying and I guess the whole question then, if I, I guess I will pose a question, the whole question is, is a more appropriate punishment to be like Nimrod, who seems not to be aware that his speech is totally futile because he continues to speak, right? So he's a sinner who 
in a sense, his punishment is a complete lack of self-knowledge. He seems to keep speaking to people. He seems to keep trying to understand people. He never will. And then the other paradigm for punishment in hell we have is the one represented by Master Adam that I read and by Satan, where they're there and they seem to have a great knowledge of exactly why they're there. And that seems constitutive of the punishment, right? And so we think about the punishment for sin, these two divergent paths. Am I right in thinking that Dante includes space for both of them in hell, right? The sort of punishment that's completely ignorant of sort of the cause and effect, the sort of justice of it, all that, and the one that the, the, the very knowledge of what you've lost seems to be the punishment itself. Am I right that Dante's making space for both of those? And can we detect any sort of rhyme or reason or logic why some sinners seem to receive one form of punishment and some the other? You don't, you don't think that it would be possible to think of Satan as weeping not because of a sad heart or but of out of anger, right? Now, it could be that he's internally full of rage and hatred. Even you could say part of his punishment is that he doesn't have any mechanism for expressing that he is a mechanism, uh, which does not permit him to, but internally he still wants to destroy God and wants to destroy, you know, the world or whatever. I mean, so like, yeah, just the, the, the gap between what he desires and what he can do is so great. And that's what, you know, the greatest of any being maybe in the universe. And that's what makes him weep. And that's what makes him, I mean, he does endlessly uh, devour the bodies of the three, the three mm-hmm. other traitors, right? There's something yeah. mechanical about that as well, mechanistic about that. But yeah, no, I I can conceive of that, Adam. I guess the question is, which is also interesting, it occurs to me that this Satan is the only demonic figure that we see being punished. Right? The other demons are punishers, right? And this sole demonic fig- figure, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, is being punished. Their punishment is just to like be in hell. Yeah, but I think in Dante's eschatology, he would say. And I think we've seen indications in the poem. At the end, they'll too be thrown in the, the pit of fire or whatever, right? A la Revelation. My reading of Satan, I guess, is contingent on the parallelism between him and the other sinners in that circle, right? So the other sinners in that circle who are also betrayers, right? I read it a couple minutes ago. While from their eyes came testimony of their woeful hearts. Mm-hmm. So there Dante saying is, the tears are telling me that their heart is sad inside. So whether that yeah. applies to Satan, right, whether he's of the same nature, qualitatively speaking to the human sinners around him who were satanic in their actions is kind of the precise question, which has to do kind of with the soul of Satan, right? Or the psyche of Satan. And there's also a parallel between Satan and the other giant and the giants, though, right? They're all, he, Satan is gigantic and the giants are gigantic. Mm. And the giants are angry, they're bound, but they're mad, they're bound. They shake with rage about being bound. And they uh, still yeah, seem to have fierce looks of rage and and uh, destructiveness. Yeah. And of course, there's also the parallel that the giants tried to destroy the gods and destroy Jove and Satan tried to destroy, destroy God. So can we 
can we could we posit something i think that's a really good observation adam could we posit something like this the uh tears which freeze him so sadness and rage are not typically emotions that are combined right it seems from a sort of strictly phenomenological standpoint or experiential standpoint it seems hard to say that you can experience both of these at the same time we look at the figure of satan right we see tears which represent an impotent sadness because they ever freeze you know worsening his situation right not leading to the freedom of repentance but leading to a deeper encasement in ice and then we see the chewing right which represents an impotent rage because he chews and chews and chews but never um that never that task never comes to completion and so at the center of hell right at the center of all rebellion against god there's the combination of of two things that earthly speaking strictly from a sort of terrestrial worldly standpoint can't be combined and the, those two things are rage and sadness how does that reading strike either of you gentlemen rage and sadness i'm not so sure that rage and sadness can't be combined actually <laughs> i mean this is maybe beside the point but it's just experientially you don't think it's possible to be very angry and very sad at the same time i don't think rage and sadness or rage and sorrow are possible at the same time i think it's possible to feel angry and sad at the same time but i think of rage as like i guess i think of sadness my own experience right when i think of rage there's a sort of like i'm it's a there's a ecstasy to it in the, in the sense of like going out of your place right when you're in rage you're like not in control mm. and when i think of deep grief it's like mm. I just, you know, retreat into myself, mm -hmm. right? And it's, there's a sort of paralysis with deep grief. Mm -hmm. So yes, I agree with you that anger and sadness can be felt at the same time, but I would say the extremes of rage and grief, let's say, one takes you outward, right? When you're raged, what do you want to do? You want to break stuff. You want to do something rash. You want to like punch somebody. You want to like burn the world down, right? when you're in deep grief there's a sort of paralysis to it where you're like my my inner world is so heavy that I, it's almost hard to move no i mean i see what do, you mean do you buy that am i uh <laughs> yeah i mean this is a little bit speculative but you know obviously there's a subjective quality to this but i, I am thinking like this the final levels of hell are all about betrayal right the most grievous sins are betrayal of family and kin and city and and leader or lord or something and i feel like if if someone that you trust or love betrays you the kind of reaction the twinned emotional reaction to that in, involves both rage and sadness right that are kind of like feeding off each other and i mean i see how like maybe you can't minute to minute immediately experience them simultaneously but I do think, especially in a case like betrayal, it's it's a feedback relationship between those two, between those two emotions. Yeah, I, well, I think you're right. But I also, you're talking about the betrayed. We're talking about the betrayers. I'm talking about the betrayed. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah I'm yeah. not sure how that exactly fits with this 
betrayal is the is the most grievous sin but but what i'm saying is you don't go to this level of hell because somebody betrayed you right you go because you betrayed somebody yeah 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 no i was just thinking like maybe there's some connection there you know um somehow hmm. the somehow the feeling of the the betrayed <laughs> is like visited on the betrayer and it's part of their punishment or something i don't know i'm really <laughs> hesitant to describe god as having feelings in any way mm-hmm. But no, but well, it's not about that's the, part of Dante's theology. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But I think uh the idea that right in hell, I mean that that's the whole idea of the contrapasso, right? In hell you receive the perfect punishment that's appropriate to your sin. Right. And so if you're a betrayer, the fact that in hell you would you would experience the emotion experience the pain that you inflicted on the person you betrayed or experience the pain of betrayal actually seems perfectly appropriate and so in some weird sense right this actually opens a whole new way of thinking about it so if we accept this idea that in hell you you basically you yeah you receive the 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 sin that you receive the punishment that perfectly corresponds to your sin right satan is the ultimate betrayer right would eternally live through the experience of being betrayed which doesn't mean that god betrayed satan right but that his punishment is to internally eternally inhabit this position of someone who's betrayed. been betrayed yeah. which could mm-hmm. be offers an alternative explanation for the tears right oh yeah yeah that's good yeah, it feels a little bit like a stretch because I don't think we really can identify that as a pattern in the other punishments that somehow you're experiencing or inhabiting the... Eh, maybe you could. I don't know about that, mm-hmm. actually. Well, so like, okay, so Francesca, right? She's blown about by the wind because she was blown about by her passions, right? So it's a physical expression of of her sin. Uh, the suicides, right? They're, they Their bodies become trees because they betrayed their bodies. Um, yeah these are so there doesn't seem to be a relationship between that and the people hurt by the sin that i can that i can mm-hmm. see yeah no, no yeah i'm thinking through it hmm. i don't know <laughs> well like another thing you might think about is this does seem to be like i've, I've said before there's this program of thinking about the power of language to deceive and i, I do think yeah in, in hell you are sort of with your i think I, I texted you that ruskin quote about you know there's something kind of simplistic about just identifying each sinner with one sin mm-hmm. but it's the favorite sin that is that matters you know it's like the sin that you really don't want to give up because it's you know it's the one that you feel the deepest down that you like the most right and in hell, you're sort of with the sin that you like the most. And that's that's what defines you. And that's what becomes, you know, that's what you really are, I guess. So somehow in the realm of the betrayers, there's a sense that you're, you are with your ability to use language to deceive and manipulate to your own ends. Like you're trapped with that, you know? So it's like you're manipulating yourself forever. Maybe you're like betraying yourself. So those experience, those feelings of sorrow and rage are like created by you within you. <laughs> You're like trapped yeah, yeah. in a loop of betrayal and betrayed, betrayer and betrayed. 
Right. Well, uh, well, two things. I mean, right. Fathers, Osima and brothers, Karamazov, right. Above all else, don't lie to yourself. If you do that, all is lost. It's a really striking, amazing line in that novel. There is a sense, right. So I, right. In a sense, Satan did betray himself, right. In betraying God, he betrayed himself, right. He, he is both betrayer and betrayed, right. There's a sort of divided self thing there. And then it's interesting with the, the Ugolino Ruggieri thing, right? At least in the case of Ruggieri, right? He's literally paired with the one he betrayed forever, right? And they sort of form this like symbiotic unit where um, his betrayal is visited on him forever in the form of Ugolino gnawing on his head. So that seems to kind of confirm your, your way of thinking about Adam. If hell is about the recognition of sin right what is the greatest recognition of sin you could what is the greatest recognition about sin that you could come to as a you know sort of orthodox smaller orthodox christian uh is the recognition that sin is something that appears delightful or fun right thinking of augustine's pairs here right sin is something that appears delightful or fun but ultimately it's a betrayal of yourself right Mm -hmm. you're betraying yourself in doing that and in betraying yourself, you're kind of creating this division. There's the part of you that betrays and the part of you that is betrayed, right? So what is self, self, or what is sin? Sin is sort of disintegration of the self in this way. Mm-hmm. And if you see that from a Christian standpoint, if you see that, you've seen the nature of sin, right? You've seen what sin does, why God says not to do it, why it's so harmful, right? Because it's really a betrayal of yourself. And, and insofar as we as humans are created in the image of God, right, in betraying yourself, you're betraying the image of God in you, right? Mm-hmm. So your self-betrayal is also a betrayal of God. But if you think about it, it's, I mean, it's easy to conceptualize this with the suicides, right? The suicide certainly betrays his body and in some sense himself, and in so doing also betrays God who, who bequeaths him that body and who made it in his image. I think that's the smartest thing I'm going to say tonight. So <laughs> because <laughs> if, if it was smart, I don't know if it was, but that, that feels. That's so smart. No, I like, uh, <laughs> so I like smart. The... I can't, I can't follow. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> the All idea right. Thank of thanks the... for flattering me, Adam. Thank you. Yeah. I, I needed that. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. The disintegration of the self. I think that's a really great way to put, you know, what, what sin does to the sinner how the the fallout of being a sinner is disintegration of the self Mm -hmm. and so does i mean satan's punishments so we're talking about dante's poetic representation of these punishments and the disintegration of the self do the 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 punishments seem to reflect that does satan bear like the greatest disintegration by being frozen and in this just sort of static uh, i guess sort of like a perpetual motion but he he can do nothing but gnaw on the great betrayers and weep and freeze all the tears and of the be, sinners. Be, be beat his wings, even though that's yeah. worsening his situation, right? He's like almost 
he's almost part of the earth, right? I was trying to think about a way of, to talk about the fact that they use his body to move from hell into take get access to the mountain of purgatory like his body is the fulcrum somehow mm -hmm. it's like it's almost like he's become well there's there's this, like in go ahead no no i guess that's why he's, he's like almost like part of the earth in a way you know yeah and, well and what I, what i like about that is i mean there's this kind of binary between like matter and spirit in some way right and uh if greg was here he'd have something interesting to say about it but this idea that like yeah satan is and this is kind of what you were saying with the lifelessness right and the word for spirit in greek is the same as the word for wind i think it might be as the same as the word for breath right satan is one in which all spirit has left him and so what does that leave you it makes you sort of of the earth almost completely if we think like, of the formation of just real quick if we think of the formation of adam right god molds him out of the dust and then he breathes life into him mm -hmm. right so so adam is this composite of spirit and spirit dust and dust yeah. and you subtract all the spirit from satan <laughs> and what you're left with is dust yeah right sorry go ahead no i was thinking he must be the the object in the universe that is most unlike god right He's the opposite. Mm -hmm. He's God's God. Is that fair? And I if you think so. of God yeah. as like pure spirit, the most rarefied pure spirit, then Satan would be the opposite, which would be the complete, not even disintegration of, of self, but like the complete disintegration of of life and yeah, spirit and life and light and just nothing but mechanism Wait, and darkness. And yeah, everything. which maybe helps explain why he can't speak right because speech is a i mean it's literally dependent on wind right your yeah. body wind but it is spiritual in some way so maybe both our readings were wrong maybe there there is no psychology to satan at all he just weeps because he's in pain but he mm -hmm. has no knowledge of why he's in pain or what the pain means he just is a suffering a suffering block of earth and he chomps and he bats his wings and there's no awareness of what he's doing yeah so the disintegration of self part still obtains, but it's disintegration of self as like a total loss of spirit. Mm -hmm. He's the heaviest object in the universe, right? He's at yeah. the center of all things and he's down there because he's the heaviest. He's like a rock that's just rolled to the very bottom of the hill. Right. He's like, but he's essentially a rock who suffers. That's what. Mm -hmm. I do think that though, that the idea that the self is this disintegration of self question is somewhat complicated because the most articulate center we encounter is immediately preceding satan it's not as if all the centers in the final realms are have passed beyond the threshold of mm -hmm. of reason and language and discourse you know? let me ask this question do you think so how to say this dante wrote the poem to have pedagogic value I think I'm going to start with that supposition. And I think, so if you think back to the early layers of hell and all the way to this last layer, right? When you look at the early layers of hell, looking at Francesca, looking at the people in limbo, looking at the hoarders and the wasters who are throwing stuff back and forth, 
right? It would be hard to sort of recognize what we just articulated that sin, recognizing sin means recognizing that it's a self-betrayal that leads to self-disintegration, mm-hmm. right? And so as Dante the Pilgrim goes on his journey, he sort of progressively sees this unveiled. So that's one way of thinking about it, right? But then we have this problem with Ugolino. And like, in some ways, Ugolino and Francesca are like very similar, right? Both of them give an account of themselves that's quite flattering, that is rhetorically masterful. And I would argue that Ugolino's is much harder to see through than Francesca's. Like I read Ugolino's and I go, I have no idea why he's here. Right. And I almost have to sort of read the footnotes and sort of start to put together this thing of like, well, he also betrayed the city of Florence, blah, 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 blah. And the one difference, right, is that Dante the Pilgrim doesn't seem to be taken in by Ugolino's speech in the same way, right? He doesn't fall to this great pity or something. So I th- I'll leave with this, I guess, observation. It seems to me that from the beginning to the end, Dante the Pilgrim has learned to recognize such, and there's been a sort of progressive unveiling of the nature of sin. But how Ugolino falls in that pattern, I think we'd have to do some work to think about. I think my hunch is that from Canto 1 to Canto 34, there's a progressive unveiling of the nature of sin with each level. Dante the Pilgrim is able to see with more and more clarity what we've articulated. And I think Ugolino would fall into that pattern if we had the time and the expertise to sort of unpack it. But that's my hunch, and it might be wrong. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think that I think one thing one way to think about maybe is that the nature of sin hasn't changed all that much. It's just that the pilgrim himself has become more aware of what it is. Right? I mean, I sort of think about like this might be my analogy, right? You have the functional alcoholic, let's say the college kid who, drinks a little too much or whatever, right? Habitually. Mm -hmm. And then you have the sort of alcoholic who's on death's door because Mm -hmm. he drinks so hard, right? And and what's the the difference between that is a sort of difference in severity. And in some ways it's easier to see the nature of the sin through the more severe example. And as we've gone down, down, down through this cone of hell, Right, we've seen more and more severe examples, which somewhat paradoxically more clearly reveal the truth than the less severe examples. So you can look at lust and not quite understand this whole self-disintegration thing. But you look at the sort of darkest kind of betrayal and you go, oh, I now see the effect of all of this. And it almost allows you to go back to like those earlier layers with Francesca, et cetera and go, oh, that's what was really going on there, but I was seeing a sort of lighter version of it. Yeah. A less yeah. severe version of it. That might be my proposal, my counter-proposal, but I'm agnostic between the two at this moment. Yeah. So on that reading, Ugolino's story, if seen correctly, would be a story of selfishness and self-deception which results in the starvation of innocent children right something like that 
see a really monstrous example of or just like i don't know what i'm not i don't know flattery or something i guess or because mm-hmm. you wouldn't i mean well, i think we would, we would spend so much time with the the consequences created by a sin right i don't think like here you have actually this maybe this is the first time in the inferno like you have the this is reported by you Gilino, but the but innocents who are not in hell speak right mm-hmm. and he might just be using their speech to try and make a case for himself but i guess the other way, maybe what I'm trying, another way of saying is like the monstrousness you're seeing here is that here's a man who watches his children starve to death and he can only think about it in terms of him himself. Mm-hmm. Which is a little bit paradoxical because like the more yourself disintegrates, the more you end up. There's this like a, this solipsism that results from the disintegration of the self somehow. Yeah. Well, whatever Satan is crying for, whatever he's aware of, he's certainly not crying for all the people he's led down to hell, right? Mm-hmm. He might be <laughs> crying about his own fate, about you know, nothing at all. He might be a weeping rock, but he's definitely not sorry that he caused so much suffering on the human race. No, I wouldn't think so. Yeah. Well, and it, right, it'd be interesting to hear Ruggieri's version of the story um, and assuming he's rhetorically skilled as well, right? You might hear both of them and go, I don't, yeah, might, Mm -hmm. Ugolino might very much look like the bad guy, right? Right, right, right. Uh, huh. Are we up to reading this book? That's my only question. Are we up to interpreting this book? (laughs) (laughs) Final thoughts on Inferno before we head to Purgatory, right? Yep. Um, Mm -hmm. Get the hell out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Dad joke. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Sorry. Go ahead, Alex. Oh. Yeah, I think Inferno has been like pretty much every book that we've read. It's been uh, pretty illuminating for trying to understand human nature. So been looking at sin and sort of repentance. I don't know. Maybe we could talk about like we've been talking along the way, like how instructive is the poem? Like how how effective do you think this poem would be for discouraging people to not be sinful <laughs> yeah it is i think easy for us to forget about that that part of it you know um it's kind of, it's almost like unclear to me how that could be well first off it's unclear to me how that could really be a topic of discussion on this kind of a podcast like but it's also unclear to me that that was really the purpose of this poem exactly i mean other than just like some brute way like hell is bad don't go to hell you know but that seems i don't know though i think you know i kind of <laughs> this is where we really are missing are missing paul but like I feel like the moral arguments are fairly sophisticated in that you do see the ease with which you can 
do terrible things and not and lie to yourself about them you know and how that's that can get you into a cycle that you cannot escape from you know that cycle kind of becomes your can even become your personality you know yeah I think whatever Dante's up to, I don't, so I'm thinking of the sermon, the long sermon and portrait of the artist as a young man. Mm-hmm. And that sermon seems to mostly appeal to fear. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not even sure that I could totally defend this or articulate why I think this, but I don't think Dante's primary approach is I want to inspire fear in my readers. I just don't think that's what he's up to which I think I'm just following up on your comment that there's some sophisticated moral arguments here. I think he's trying to get readers to see something, um, see something about the nature of sin, see something about the grotesqueness of it. But I don't think he's just trying to inspire fear. I think if that was his motive, he would have written a different kind of poem. And I think a question I, I was thinking of a couple of minutes ago and I forgot, it came back to me, but I think something we didn't talk about, which we'll have opportunity to revisit in purgatory, and I think the material in purgatory will help us think through this. There's a sort of question, you could ask the question about sin and about virtue of like, is what is the unity or multiplicity of sin? Like, is sin such that it's really all one sin with different expressions? Is there a substrate? Um, and I think Dante thinks there is. I don't know at this point that we can articulate what it is. And then you could ask the same sort of question about virtue, right? Are there are there many virtues or is there one virtue? I'll just leave it at this. The question I'm left with at the end of this, well, that I'll, uh, a question that will be at the front of my mind next time I read this poem will be, right, is there an underlying, underlying unity to all of this sin that um, Dante wants us to see? Is it all really one at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's interesting to compare it to the um, the sermon and portrait of the artist. Feels like this is the hell that you create when you are part of a culture that takes hell seriously as a real place without a lot of need to defend. He doesn't feel like he needs to defend the existence of hell, right? Like it's so it can bear a kind of multiplicity of interpretations and meanings. The portion of the artist hell feels like a sort of a rear guard action. It's like you can't use hell as a mythic, as a myth or a mythos because it's already, its power is already so weakened that you have the only way to like have it hold sway over people is to just say imagine really imagine how much it's going to hurt to you know have your head not on by by someone else who's in the same little ice cube as you for all eternity imagine the teeth in your skin over and over again over and over and over again forever forever and ever and ever you know for how long is forever going to last if you take a you know take a knife and hack at a mountain until the mountain disintegrates and then it up again and disintegrates or you know whatever uh, i can't remember the image but anyway yeah so it just feels like there's a way in which treating something as a myth 
is actually an expression of belief in it rather than an expression of doubt. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be literal in the same way. Literalness is kind of a, like doubt precedes literalness. <laughs> Dante's hands are free in a way the priests and Joyce, the hands of the priests and Joyce's are not. Yeah. And, and it, it, it obviously results in it at the very least a greater work of art right i think dante is a greater work of art than the sermon <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure yeah yeah absolutely but you know i mean it's like i if you grew up in like a fundamentalist christian environment you know you one of the tenets there is that the every word of the bible is the literal <clears throat> the literal truth you know and so you end up with a much more simple-minded and uh, with a religion that, that has kind of jettisoned its history and its theological riches because it's so afraid of the... Because interpreting the meaning of biblical symbols feels like the first step on the way to denying the truth of the Bible at all, right? But I think Dante's operating from a much different kind of place. Where in some sense, the truth of the Bible feels like unassailable. So you have a much wider range of interpretive possibilities you can bring to it. If that right, you can well, you can wrestle with it in a different way. Yeah, right. And that's yeah. I mean, that's the the four layers of scriptures, right? That the church fathers talk about, right? The the moral, the eschatological, the allegorical and the typological or something i mean I, I don't remember off the top of my head but right they take it for granted there's four meanings and the allegorical can be argued with argued about forever right there's multiple layers of allegorical meaning you know it's literal moral christological and eschatological mm. so every piece of scripture tells you something about the literal truth and i mean the Certainly medievals would say there was a real ark that Noah was in, mm-hmm. but it's also tells you something about how to, how to live, tells you something about Christ and tells you something about the end times, the end of all things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, any last words? Uh. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground in this one. So. Maybe yeah, we, we did. We, maybe we said it all. I'm almost sad to leave hell. <laughs> thank you for joining us on the quixotic quest for the key next week we'll be entering purgatory uh contest one through three translation by robert and gene hollander good night thank you good night good night i think that ended up being a really good conversation yeah yeah that, that was good yeah.